I think what's happening is that, you know, Google are working towards more real-time updates. They're doing a lot of testing. They've got lots of different algos, you know, being pushed at different times. And the problem is, is that they conflict with one another. So the biggest bit of advice I always give is testing and to not take decline at face value. Welcome to the Design Rush Podcast. I'm your host, Bianca Mayer. Today, we're excited to have Daniel Foley-Carter, an esteemed SEO expert, join us. We'll delve into Daniel's journey in SEO, discussing the latest trends and his unique, authentic approach. Don't forget to like and subscribe for more engaging conversations with industry leaders. Let's dive in and welcome Daniel Foley. So Daniel, I just want to say welcome again to the Design Rush Podcast. We are super excited to have you here today. Um, so before we dive in a little bit, I, I just want our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So could you just briefly introduce yourself and just give us an overview of what it is that you do? Please? Yeah, sure. So, um, first of all, thank you for uh, bringing me on the podcast. So, um, actually I've been looking, uh, to get back into the circuit a little bit more from a podcast front and speaking at conferences front. Um, so to give you a little bit of background, uh, my name is Daniel Foley-Carter. Um, I started SEO in the late 1990s. So originally at a young age, I'd been given a computer. Um, I'd learned how to write and program in Visual Basic. Then I started making websites. So back in the early days of the internet, I'd get a website online. Uh, I'd try and sell the software that I'd wrote. Um, and then obviously, you know, I have a website, how do I get people to it? So I learned the early days of SEO using, you know, AltaVista, Lycos, FreeServe, Hotbot, um, lots of search engines that probably most people in the industry joining later haven't heard of. Um, so I started doing SEO, you know, at the end of the 90s. Um, and then sort of throughout the early 2000s, I was at agencies as a junior SEO exec. Um, by the mid 2000s, uh, I decided to start my own agency called Assertive, uh, which was back in 2007. Um, I ran the agency um, pretty much for the last 15, 16 years. And I also launched a number of other SEO businesses. So some people know that I run a specialist order in consultancy. And I'm also in the midst of building uh, an SEO SaaS. So pretty SEO obsessed, as it were. Um, so I've been in the industry a long time. I've seen everything change. So I've seen how SEO has changed, how the industry has changed, how Google has changed. Um, and then obviously how the search market in general has changed. So, you know, now I like to share as much as I can on LinkedIn in terms of SEO tips, advice, expertise, and things like that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for that, Daniel. We're going to delve a little bit more, I think, into, um, you know, SEO, because of course you're an expert in your field and we really would love to pick your brain a little bit, um, especially about, you know, current trends and, and how we can unpredict or, uh, and how we can, um, you know, navigate these unpredictable waters with, with SEO, because we do know that it's constantly changing. Now, again, given these rapid changes in search algorithms, what do you currently consider as the foundational strategies for effective SEO? Um, so I guess looking at it um, 
foundational strategies for maybe people that are uh, less experienced in SEO or people that are coming into the industry and learning SEO. Um, the, the whole foundation of SEO has shifted more so in the last three or so years as Google's got progressively more intelligent in respect of being able to process big data, use machine learning, artificial intelligence. From a foundation perspective, for many, many years, um, SEOs had a limited pathway to learn. So to provide a bit of context, SEO over the years has got progressively more difficult and it's got progressively more expensive and time consuming. The foundations of SEO for a long time were a lot more simple in the past. So many years ago, people could learn SEO relatively quickly because there wasn't a great deal of complexity to it. You know, back in the early 2000s, it was literally creating doorway pages, putting keywords in in tags and in your URL and basically stuffing keywords in and then getting any kind of links. And it was really basic stuff. Um, but obviously, as SEO has, has become a lot more complex, there's a lot more to it. That means the foundation of, you know, where people need to start learning has, has changed significantly as well. And sadly, because SEO is non-curricular, it's not uh, a, an independent thing that people can learn about, you know, if they go to a college or a university, um, you know, there might be marketing things there, but, you know, a raw solid SEO training is, you know, it's hard to find good training out there. Um, so from a foundational point of view, um, I guess the way that people need to be taught at an early level is really about creating something that is going to be beneficial for the end user. So a lot of SEO training in the past for foundation users, for people new into the industry, was really based on making websites for search engines. And that was it. And it was a case of, you know, do this so that Google understands, you know, what it is that you have to offer. But the fact is now, obviously, given the tech advancements, you know, we've got Moore's law, processing power has grown exponentially. And with that exponential growth in processing power, we have complex algorithms that are able to work with much wider data points. And fundamentally, that's allowed Google to finally start pivoting towards SEO, which is a website created for the user, not for a search engine. So from a foundation perspective, what uh, junior SEOs and SEOs coming into the industry need to really concentrate on is how do I know, A, what an end user wants, and B, how am I going to make pages on our site fit what that end user wants? So from a foundational perspective, understanding what a user wants and being able to translate that into output you know, in a web page that loads quickly, it's orientated in a way that's really clean and easy to use with content that meets the needs of the user. Those are the most foundational things that I would say high level were things that, you know, uh, new SEOs need to focus on. So, you know, that could be basic things rather than teaching people, you know, from an SEO beginner point of view, you know, you need to pick some keywords and you need to write those into your content. The concept needs to change to say, well, if you want to rank for, you know, buy cheap trainers, then you need to understand the concept that does your, does the site that you're optimizing for have lots of cheap trainers rather than stuffing content in. 
So I'd say foundational is meeting end user needs. That's going to be the priority part for foundation SEO. So in that case, you're saying, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm assuming that you're saying that, um, you know, at some point we will only be gearing SEO towards the users and not so much the sites anymore. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Google doesn't want, yeah, Google doesn't want people building sites for it basically, because the moment that you focus on Google and not on the end user, you're then relying on Google to get it right more of the time. Whereas if Google uses, you know, uh, behavioral data as a better indicator of whether something's good, then it puts the responsibility of good SEO in the hands, you know, of the SEO and it allows Google to uh, to use more real-time signals to say, is something a good fit? So I use the cheap trainers analogy because it's really simple. If someone goes to Google to buy cheap trainers, they aren't going to Google because they want to read about it. And traditional SEO would always have you have a buy cheap trainers page or a cheap trainers page and you would jam content in there and, um, and, and you would really emphasize on the content. But that content isn't there for the people. So from Google's perspective, would it rather rank a page that talks about buy cheap trainers in all different shapes of topic? Or would it rather a site with tens of thousands of cheap trainers with loads of filtering and really good UX and you know fast loading where users more likely to engage and transact? You know, Google's going to go for the latter, even if the content might not be you know, that's substantial. So optimizing for search engines is losing value. Um, what I mean by that is when you look at the Google helpful content guidelines, some of the criteria basically are like questions. So Google is saying, ask yourself these questions, you know, does the content offer something unique, something of value? Does it look like it's created for search engines? So the fact that they're specifying that clearly means that they, they don't want that. Um, and I guess the other pivotal path of it is the reason that um, people years ago, and even up until recently, and even now some people still do it, the reason that people optimize for search engines is because they're under the concept that if you, you know, if you don't make it clear to Google what a page is in every respect, that you're not going to rank for it. That was traditionally a case in the past, you know, when Google didn't have rank brain, when Google didn't have helpful content algos, when it didn't have the complexity it has now. So now, if we were to say buy cheap trainers, Google isn't going to rely on content to rank, it's going to look at the bigger picture, you know, product coverage, um, brand signals, um, and aggregated user behavior. Um, which is a bit of a contentious hot topic. And I think it's probably something that people be very interested in. And there's a lot of argument and speculation around user behavior and SEO, but that would definitely be something we could also uh, bring up in this podcast. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, to me, what it sounds like to me that's just screaming out to me right now is just authenticity, to be honest with you. Um, it's 
you know, I from what I understood about SEO, right? And I'm not a I'm not an SEO expert, of course, but um, what I understood is that there was always this balance that you had to meet between the end user and the search engine, right? So you saying to me that Google is kind of or search engines are starting to really um, prioritize the end user experience is music to my ears, of course. But I am wondering. How is that starting to implement now, or how can we start implementing that now, in an from an SEO perspective? Well, I guess you could break SEO down into its component forms. So when we talk about SEO as not being creating something for search engines, but for the end user, that's that's the content part of it. So. SEO obviously, when you compartmentalize it, has lots of different parts to it. So you could even you could simplify it by saying tech, content, links, brands, behavioral factors. But then obviously, when we talk about tech, for example, so tech SEO, you know, you would still need to make sure that Google can, you know, call your site. It can it can render the pages, render the output that it's able to get all of the resources that it needs to be able to load the page so it can generate a render so it can generate a cache so whilst that's not you know necessarily optimizing specifically for search engines you are making sure that google bot uh you know bing bot and other search crawlers are able to you know fundamentally take content created for the user and see that so there are still nuances of SEO that technically you could say are, you know, perhaps for search engines. But when you look at it, you know, Google is getting smarter. So, for example, you know, we have AI image recognition now. So with the advent of DALI and, and different uh, LLMs um, and, you know, uh, different AI image modeling, you know, if we took that concept and said, well, do we really need to sit and specify anchor text, you know, for every single image? Or, you know, do we need to provide the same level of detail? Take structured data, for example. So Google uses uh, uh, structured data, JSON, rich snippets. But the fact is, is that, you know, with the progressive evolution of Google algos, you know, Google will be able to far better compartmentalize data so that all of a sudden, Rather than you needing to specify structured data, Google will do it itself. The most obvious example of this is title tags. So I think Ahrefs did a study, 70% plus of title tags are rewritten by Google. So for years and years and years, a core part of on-site SEO was to make sure that your title tags weren't too short, too long, uh, you know, that they didn't end up with truncation or that they didn't contain, you know, non-ASCII characters or... You know, you put your keywords in them, but then you've got Google now rewriting title tags in lots of instances. So, you know, the argument that Google hasn't already started this is, you know, could be rebutted immediately. How far Google goes with it, well, only time will tell with that. But we are moving towards, you know, uh, uh, tech evolution where Google will be able to render a page and it will be able to make sense of the stuff without us telling it. So this is the transition from traditional SEO to modern SEO and obviously to future SEO where, you know, machine learning is so powerful that we no longer need to spoon feed it all the things that we did 
back when they didn't have that advanced technology. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, one thing that I did want to just quickly go back to was, um, you know, UX obviously is also for end users. So will that also become a new factor in SEO, would you say? If you have end user needs met, for example, um, what would happen is that the UX would be supportive of that. So if I, as a user, came to a website, you know, uh, and I want to book a holiday, you know, I want to go to Greece and I want to book a holiday, you know, if the site has 10,000 holidays in Greece, so it's got a massive range with everything, and I would probably find the holiday that I want, if the UX isn't there, and, you know, it's awkward to use on a mobile, the filtering's bad, it's just clunky, then what that's going to do is that's going to send me back to Google to continue my search. Now, if that behavior is repeated consistently, then it starts to give Google a picture. Well, that clearly something isn't right there because, you know, user journeys just aren't consistently finishing there. There's a constant pogo, there's low engagement. So this is the part where UX, you know, will play in the overall experience uh, and, and how people interact with content. And it's the same thing. You could write the world's most amazing content. You could present something that is truly incredible. But if it's not orientated in a way that, people like then it's more likely not to have you know the same effect okay so then on another note what um is it what should seo specialists be you know be studying now i know you said that there aren't a lot of um you know, educational materials out there at the moment but what would you say is the one type of seo that they need to become experts in because it seems like there's a lot to cover. So is there something specific that's really standing out right now and that you can foresee really for the next, say, five years? Or is it too unpredictable? Um, I'd, I'd say it's, it's, it is really unpredictable. So I guess breaking it up, we would use common sense. Um, so by common sense, we, we take an approach where we really now have to think of all of the ways that we can meet end user needs. So if we were to take this as like uh, a pie, so if we had like a whole pie and then we were to break that pie up, the most important things I believe over the next five years uh, and again, this is based on my belief. You know, I do a lot of my own testing. There's a lot of subjectivity and discussion in the SEO world. But um, I'm a heavy, firm believer that uh, machine learning and user behavior are going to become incredibly value valuable in terms of SEO weighting. So we've had traditional SEO for years and years and years where we're trying to convince Google that our result, you know, is the best. Okay, but what underlying factor is the biggest thing that dictates whether or not something was good? Behavior. Behavior is is the overarching factor that trumps all other factors together. If people like something, it doesn't matter with our keywords in a H1 tag or if our keywords are in a cluster or if we even have a content cluster or if we have 
FAQ rich results or image alt tags. None of that matters. What matters is what are people doing? How does machine learning take these behavioral factors and say, right, well, clearly these sites here exhibit, you know, uh, uh, positive engagement. And these sites here seem to be the ones where people don't continue, you know, their search after indicating that the users found what they want, they got what they want, they brought what they want, they got the answer that they wanted. That search is abandoned, finishes, okay? So if machine learning, which is massively more powerful when you do it at scale than, you know, humans looking at it, you take all of this data and then it soon becomes, you know, very apparent what is and isn't good. So the most powerful metric we've had for the last 20 years was links, you know, because it worked like a voting system. So even back many, many, many moons ago when Google was dumb, you know, it had the basic link voting system. If something was good, it would naturally get more links. And Google hinged on that. But obviously that's an area that's been most open to abuse over the years. And even today, like Google's still fighting with link spam. You know, it's got a lot better with it, with uh, spam brain and but the point still stands. So over the next five years, I see a heavy pivot towards machine learning and aggregated user behavior. Brand. So I think it's it's definitely going to be one of those things where brand starts to have a more overarching weight as well. So traditionally, one part of brand was done by link building. Loads and loads of links to a domain. It looks like an authority. But then we have to consider brand clout. How many people were Googling the brand? How many, you know, Reddit forums and Quora threads and how many other instances of the brand everywhere? How many reviews are there? You know, what does the socials look like? Um, so I think brand is also going to play a key part in the next five years because of trust factors. So we have EAT. Um, so how trustworthy is a, is a, is a brand, is a domain? Um, so that that will tie in. Um, I also think that over the next five years, how Google integrates AI into search is also going to be um, a massively leveling factor. So we know that SGE is going to be disruptive because it's fundamentally going to introduce something new above the fold. It's going to reduce organic exposure uh, for traditional listings. So I think... When we look at content and content frameworks, we're going to also have to consider, you know, the probability of our content for inclusion in SGE. So these are also going to be important things for the next five years. I think fundamentally those are the most important things. And then you can dress things that tie into user behavior. So user behavior will be intrinsically linked with UX. Um, I think from a tech perspective, I think, you know, um, that will probably simplify. So I think, uh, you know, because if you come away from SEO and you move over to web development, web development is also pivoting towards websites that are cleaner, lighter, faster, you know. So when you take those tech stacks um, and, you know, there's we've had to go through a transitional period with those for years where Google couldn't keep up with tech stacks, so you ha you'd have Angular, single page application tech coming out, 
and Google's racing to try and be able to render JavaScript and get. So I think tech SEO is probably going to simplify. I think as tech stacks evolve and now Google's rapidly adopting AI, it's going to be far better at getting rendering. We already know Google's improving at how it can address rendering. Um, so those would be the key areas that I'd say for the next five years. I'm probably going to hit myself later for thinking, God, why didn't I mention like all these other things? So there's probably other stuff there, but I'd put those at the forefront. So uh, I just want to get back to generative AI, right? You've mentioned it a few times now during this, this conversation. Now, obviously, AI advancements, you know, especially with GPT-4, are reshaping, you know, various industries as well. So how... I know you've said that it's going to really disrupt SEO, but how exactly do you think it's going to be transforming SEO practices soon? I think the thing is with, with AI is that um, looking at it, there are, there are numerous sides to this. So AI actually doesn't have a single side. Um, effectively, there's multiple ways that we need to that we need to break this down. So the first one is going to be from search side. So if we look at search generative AI, for example, what Google's obviously doing is it's looking to enhance search results in a way that, and it's a bit speculative. What they want to do with SGE fundamentally is improve the user experience, but I get the feeling that there's more to it than that. So what I mean is, is that, uh, many people have heard of zero-click search. So zero-click search was one of those things where people would conduct a search uh, in Google. You know, they'd ask a question, and then Google would show rich snippets. So the day, you know, in the early days of rich snippets, when someone would ask a question and the rich snippet would answer it, what that did fundamentally was it created the birth of zero-click search. And fundamentally, from that, what we have to consider is that this kind of stuff is not good for, you know, for website users. So if we ask a question and Google returns a rich snippet and our rich snippet answers the question, then the user doesn't go to the website, whereas the user might previously have gone to the website for the answer and then potentially seen something and thought, oh, I'll take a look at this. When we look at SGE, it's basically like rich snippets on steroids. So it's interactive. The data is obviously using AI. Uh, so it uses uh, multiple LLMs um, for, you know, to, to basically generate the result and then for confirmation. Um, but it's almost like um, it enhances user experience. And there'll probably be instances like e-com searches or product review searches uh, where it may be beneficial. But fundamentally, this is going to have, I'd say, a relatively uh, harsh impact on SEO because fundamentally, if someone goes to Google and searches, the general behavior for most users is to scroll down past the paid listings and engage with the organic listings. Like, you know, it does vary by niche and industry, but the general consensus for a long time is that organic results have been the key thing that people go to Google for. You know, you get, you do obviously get a portion of people that click on paid results or Google shopping results and things like that. 
But when you start looking at the real real estate on page one, you start realizing that, you know, uh, with more and more interference above the fold, more and more distraction, you know, it's then going to pivot people's efforts towards, you know, having a, a feature in uh, SGE as opposed to having a, a feature on page one. So Google's adoption of AI is, you know, it's it's going to work towards offering a better experience, but it might not be always as beneficial for the SEO community, um, but it might be for the end users. It's certainly going to involve more legwork. From the SEO side of things, where AI was initially disruptive is in reducing cost. So the reason I start with that is that most SEOs and SEO agencies and consultants before AI came along had content solutions. Okay, so they had writers, content at scale, um, article spinners back in the day, just put a load of stuff in an article spinner and it just randomly generate content. So when AI comes along, the nuances are generally, wow, this is new tech. I can feed it a prompt and it will write me an article. So now, rather than it taking me, you know, a week to get a bit of content from a writer, I can just churn up, churn out content at scale. So AI's first uh, disruptive side on the SEO front is obviously for money saving, money and time saving. Um, but the benefit is fast content. But obviously that's backfiring and it's now obviously becoming clear that those strategies don't work or if they do, they're very short lived. But I guess the the integration of AI into SEO is going to be more beneficial for data analysis, pattern recognition and general automi uh, general automation automation of you know various tasks so for example you know if people used to spend time building schema manually you know they can use ai to do it and yeah right it won't always be right they have to correct it but generally people can start using ai to automate things and that's only going to to get more and more prominent so the adoption of AI at the minute has been predominantly based around content. Um, you know, there's this, there was that false sense of security in that, you know, AI can produce amazing content. And I think one other thing that's really important to, to, uh, to, to bring up here is for a lot of people that I spoke to, when I talked to them about AI content, they didn't actually know how AI content works. So they say, yeah, artificial intelligence, but they don't, they, they've never read about uh, large language models. So whenever you get AI to write a piece of content, it does it by proximity of words. So it uses artificial intelligence and it can build strings of words, but that's, that's built on pre-existing content training. So um, if we're talking about like AI and its integration with uh, SEO, if we take the basic concept of AI is being used to generate content, AI is trained on pre-existing content and Google is saying in its helpful content algo, you know, create something new and unique. This is where the problem starts because AI is trained on pre-existing content. So it might generate randomized set of content, but 
it's not new. So then you've got all this content being produced that's not new, doesn't add any new value, and it often is missing context, and AI hallucinates a lot. So that's where it starts obviously going wrong. Moving forwards, you know, in the future, obviously, as with everything, five years from now, 10 years from now, AI content generation will be a different ball game. I think adoption from an SEO perspective now will be more for big data analysis. That is where AI will have the biggest advantage, especially probably in the next three to five years. Just one more thing on the topic of, of generative AI. So things like schemas and microformats and metadata, how important do you think this stuff is for the future of search and AI? Um, I think, I think for the short term, it will still remain important for people to use structured data, RDF, JSON, because if you are providing the information, um, it minimizes the risk of Google misinterpreting it. Um, as with anything, Google has got progressively better at being able to understand structured data, whether or not something is specified. But I think for now, it will remain uh, it will remain fundamental for people to obviously specify structured data. Because the thing is, is that if you specify structured data, you maximize the chance of it being picked up. If you don't specify it, you are relying on Google to have the ability to, to pick out that data and generate rich results from it, whether you specify the scheme or not. So I believe that still is very important and people should be doing it. Okay. Um, and then I really want to pick your brain about, you know, Google's updates, especially, you know, in November 2023 with their core update that they have had. And I think they dropped their fourth one this year, right? Um, now, of course, this has stirred the SEO community. Um, so I'd like to find out from you, how have you adjusted your strategies in response to these types of changes? So in regards to uh, refining my strategies, I actually haven't changed them all that significantly. Um, so the main reason behind that was that I tested the bandwagon for AI content, but I knew full well that I wasn't going to make that, you know, a key part of my SEO strategies for clients. So I even had clients come to me and say like, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't, you know, we could churn out so much more now and I'm, I'm pushing back on them and I'm saying, look, uh, if you think that this whole wave of new AI content, you know, is going to go without risk, uh, you know, so I advised on that. My, my SEO strategies have always been heavily built around testing. I've never brought preconceived ideas to the table in respect that every client goes through the same SEO process because they don't. So, Throughout the year, be it a product reviews update, be it a general update with EAT adjustments or YMYL adjustments, be it a helpful content update or a spam update, whatever the update it is that Google launches, the way that uh, I have always learned to adapt is to take stock and then experiment. So for example, I've worked on so many different campaigns over the, over the years and 
the updates that have been pushed in the last 12 months have been very aggressive. Um, they have caused a massive amount of uh, frustration in the SEO community. So common examples of that were, were when Google is dropping, uh, you know, uh, quality rate guidelines, EAT, helpful content guidelines. It dumps an update and then all of a sudden everyone is now reading Quora and Reddit threads, uh, you know, which are built on UGC. And people are saying, well, you know, this isn't good. You know, we've put all this work in, we're doing all these things right, and yet the results are full of garbage. And you've even now got it with the Parasite SEO. I think, uh, you know, Lily Ray uh, brought this up, where uh, and, and Mark Williams-Cook, um, that, you know, they both brought up loads of examples of Parasite SEO, you know. So here we are towards the end of 2023, Google dropping loads of machine learning, AI-infused updates, and here we are still seeing poor quality results returns. In terms of an adaptive strategy, the thing is, is that if SEOs, uh, you know, ha have a pool of clients in different niches, e-com, informational, research, service-driven, the strategy adjustment needs to be adaptive. So I'll give you a scenario. You could run a product review affiliate site and you could be producing good quality content and then Google could drop a product reviews update like it did earlier this year. And then all of a sudden you could see, you know, you can start seeing your pages tank and you're thinking, hold on a minute. You know, I've been creating really good, unique content. You know, I've not been spamming with AI. What, what, you know, what's going on? So you would go through with an SEO methodology of, well, actually, have we lost ground because there's something wrong with the site or because there's something wrong with the update? And this is what I don't hear enough people talking about. Just because Google drops an update, that, that doesn't mean that what they've dropped uh, is, is right. So I've seen sites that got absolutely clouded by an update that were really good sites, well-written content, good EAT, solid link profiles, and all of a sudden they see a load of decline and they start panicking. What have we done wrong? And then I go and look at the SERPs and I'm like, you've done nothing wrong. This is just a poor quality update. And what happens? Three, six, nine months later, Google drops another update and all that damage gets undone. So this year, the updates have been, uh, there's been tons and tons of SERP chatter, like even, you know, through November into December. There's been stuff all over the place. I've seen what looks like core reversions. Um, I think what's happening is that, you know, Google are working towards more real-time updates. They're doing a lot of testing. They've got lots of different algos, you know, being pushed at different times. And the problem is, is that they conflict with one another. So the biggest bit of advice I always give is testing. And to not take decline at face value. So, you know, look collectively at the SERPs. If you can see that tons of poor quality stuff has appeared, then you can bet that that stuff is not going to stay there very long. And on LinkedIn and out of professional courtesy, I'm not going to know, I'm not going to name who it is, but a lot of people that watch this are going to know. Uh, there are people out there that have been putting case studies out where they've been pumping AI content at volume, effectively spamming Google's index, succeeding and showing massive Ahrefs traffic growth. Okay, 
So you've got all of these people in the community angry because Google's launching these updates and you've got people spamming it with poorly generated AI content. Um, but then Google corrects these things. So I think, you know, the updates this year have, have been really challenging for Google and, and the SEO community. I think next year things will, will change for the better. I think they're doing a lot of testing at the minute. Um, but definitely SEO testing should be like at the forefront of anything, you know. Amazing. Thank you so much. That that was a really good insights into, you know, the Google Core updates and everything that's been happening this year. I know everybody has been up in arms about them. So I think thank you so much for that advice. Um, okay. So just also talking about all of that then, right? All of these things that are happening with the updates and AI and all of that, I want to talk more about, you know, what people can do with their websites now or how they can evaluate their websites. So in an industry that's obviously full of snake oil, what would you say is the most accurate single metric that can quickly assess a website's authority, you know, just at a glance? I mean, do you remember, for instance, like the Google toolbar uh, and page rank, you know, things like that was, you know, what can people really look at now? So, so this is a, this is an interesting one. So um, a lot of the stuff that I talk about uh, when I, when I talk about SEO and, and I have to make this clear to people. Um, so first of all, like whenever I speak and I sound confident or sure of myself, this is only based on my experiences. So I know everyone in the SEO industry will have an opinion and people will say, you know, I use this and this works and I use that and that works. And that's fine. Everyone, you know, has their own views. To me, I love Ahrefs, but I find DR, uh, DA, TF, CF, and they relate to Majestic. You have Majestic, you have Moz, you have Ahrefs and they have their link power scores. But the biggest problem with them is that they they set a standard in the industry because for a long time people needed a number to hook onto you know whether it was page rank when it worked on a zero to ten value you know page rank ten was just unheard of you know but if you went from a pr2 to a pr5 you know it was amazing but then when page rank disappeared and don't get me wrong page rank was like you know, it was the most amazing thing because it was Google telling you directly how how they had mathematically calculated the link weight to a page. When PageRank was taken away, there was like this vacuum. Okay, what do we look at next? So, you know, tools like Ahrefs have these metrics and people hook onto them. And don't get me wrong, if people want to use them, fine. But I find that they are damaging because they set unreal expectations. So, for example... I've had clients come to me, okay, and they have some SEO knowledge and they start talking to me about the DR of their competitors. And I say to them, look, forget about the DR. That means nothing, absolutely nothing whatsoever. DR, uh, uh, UR, uh, DA, TFCF, all these metrics have no connection to SEO whatsoever. Google doesn't use them. They are purely calculated platform side. But that's not to say that third party tool metrics can't be used. So for example, if I was going to ascertain whether I wanted a link for some, from something, I'd be looking at projected traffic of that page. So 
nothing says better whether something has some potential value than if a third party crawler like Ahrefs bot, uh, uh, you know, or, or Mars or any of these tools, if they are able to find a URL and match that URL up against keywords and then use their traffic projection model, that means that page is appearing in search. And projected traffic is almost always below real traffic because Ahrefs will be missing hundreds of millions of zero search volume or long tail keywords that appear in search console, but not in Ahrefs. So these tra traffic projections are often below real traffic. So if there's a page and it has traffic, then the likelihood that that page has content of value is higher. So if I have a page uh, that links to me and that page has some projected traffic, that means far more than a tool's third party calculated popularity metric. And as we all know, you know, uh, the SEO, the link community has been decimated by guest post spam, artificial link inflatory schemes, tiered links, and these all ramp up DR, but they show no value towards the quality of a domain. So the number one thing I'd always hook on to is projected traffic. Um, and also the other thing that I also do is I take a look at the overall domain traffic profile to see if it's upward trajectory or tanking. And then I try to see if the page that I'm getting a link from is cached and whether it has a high outbound link ratio. Those are the main things that I'd look for. Amazing. Thank you so much. So now just uh, wrapping up on the SEO section or segment of our of our podcast today, um, I just have to ask. So we as a platform at Design Rush, you know, are at the forefront of ranking top agencies that various companies can partner with. And this includes things like branding, SEO, um, web development, things like that, right? Now, given how unpredictable SEO has been and has always been and is going to continue to be, how do you think platforms like Design Rush can actually help businesses stay abreast of these evolving SEO trends, you know, and find the right expertise to navigate them? Well, I think it always comes back to the the long-running, stable factor of reviews, opinions. So the most powerful form of proof is in what other people will say about the work that you've done. So it is it is hard in this industry, um, you know, uh, because it's very easy for people to manipulate, you know, their own Google reviews and things like that. I guess with third party platforms like, you know, like Design Rush, um, you've got the ability to further segment where an agency will have specialisms. So I'm always of the opinion that picking an agency that is more specialist in the you know level of service that a client needs is going to be better. So I think, you know, if someone was using Google or Design Rush, the problem is with someone you know doing a google search you know uh it, it's not hard for an agency that knows what it's doing to rank whether or not they have good practices there are many examples over the years of agencies that i know were using bad practices to rank and they were using the same practices on their clients uh you know unbeknownst to the client whereas i guess if you've got a third party platform 
that you know is a specialist directory where people can leave reviews where you have your own obviously uh where you have your own uh platform because i know um with design rush you've got additional factors being you know pulled in for an evaluation point of view i think that gives people more of a non-biased view of whether or not you know an agency is going to be a better fit so you have obviously location filtering and then you obviously have filtering down to the specific area so you know rather than looking at just web design you know i might look for web design you know in london um and then obviously if we have ugc or or you know additional reviews there that's always going to help in the decision making process now uh pivoting to you know the importance of authenticity which is something that i touched upon previously uh in this conversation uh you know with regards to google wanting to gear you know one wanting seo to be more geared towards the user right um and i also want to bring up your linkedin post that you that you posted recently um and you know why 2023 was such a crappy year for many uh all of us included i think <laughs> so i'd like to just pick your brain on this now Daniel, you are known to be one of the most authentic figures in the in industry. So, in an era where digital personas are often super curated, um how do you maintain authenticity on social media and why do you think it's so important? The thing is is that um so if we were to to uh sort of backtrack a little bit. So, I started in the agency space you know uh back in the mid 2000s so you know i started an agency in 2007 which i'd say is fairly early on in the industry but the problem that i always had was that no matter how hard i worked day and night day and night i put in every hour that i could i could never scale as well as a lot of the agencies around me did and i always felt like i was left behind it didn't it didn't matter how much time i put in uh which leads me to the point that um work smarter not harder is obviously the most true statement ever but here's here's where everything went wrong for me because of SEO not just being my job but being my passion the thing that i absolutely i could do it every day for 15 hours and my day would just disappear whenever i tried to recruit I was always subconsciously looking for another me who would you know be there would put in every bit of commitment would be willing to learn do whatever but I found it really hard to recruit and I spent years you know uh and I did take on some very good resources I have now but I you know I was burnt a lot um and it was often a case where you know a cv would say a million words but then when someone came in they didn't have the expertise that they advertised so years and years and years go by and you know i'm helping on ranking for seo agency i'm desperate to scale and as i've gone on i've learned and one of the some of the biggest lessons that i ever learned was i couldn't figure out why there were so many big agencies um Uh, I won't I won't name them out of professional courtesy but there were big agencies and they didn't rank anywhere on Google they you, you wouldn't find them ranking for SEO company SEO services SEO they just didn't rank but they were massive agencies and I thought how are they doing this and then I realized it's who you know connections so then I realized that I can't spend my life relying on ranking because quite frankly I rank 
for like SEO agencies and all the inquiries that I got were, were small, you know, 500 pound a month, thousand pound a month. And I could never scale an agency on that. So cue my entry into LinkedIn. So I decided in 2018 that I was going to take a, a pivoted approach to building, you know, new customer bases. So we lost our rank for SEO agency. We held it for like seven years. And after seven years, I looked back and I realized, you know, we hadn't progressed much. So I pivoted to LinkedIn and then, you know, I had like 50 followers on LinkedIn. I had nothing. Um, and I decided, you know, LinkedIn is where I want to focus things because you've got Facebook, you've got Twitter, you've got these other places. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time networking every day. I'd show up, post something, connect. And it's taken me the best part of five, nearly six years to, to get to where I am. I'm not about to undo that or undo all of the time and effort that I put in by pretending. So, you know, I, I know that there are a lot of people on LinkedIn, you know, that use pods. So these people, they use pods, they post generalized regurgitated stuff in the form of inspirational quotes or business quotes. They get five, 10, 15, 20,000 likes. And you just sat thinking like there are people there looking at this thinking, you know, I put I put real value into the platform and I get one like, five likes. So for me, looking at it, I just don't want to run with that crowd. I don't want people to think that I live a life that I don't. I'd rather people knew the truth. And the truth is, is that I'm not some multi-millionaire, big agency owner. I don't see myself in any other capacity other than someone that loves the SEO industry inside out. And I think more and more people now see through all of this, uh, uh, you know, amazing growth. And, and don't get me wrong, for anyone that watches this, if you've done well this year and you promote that, brilliant. Absolutely so happy for all the businesses that do well. And I have the utmost respect, whether you're a CEO, CFO, and you're posting amazing results, brilliant. But you do get a portion of... Uh, uh, of the social community that are posting all of this stuff, but they they don't allow people to see the true story, you know. And it's it's this um, it's it's like this premise: if you show that you didn't have a good year or that things aren't always great, that you look like you're going to be a, a weaker candidate, you know, if someone wants to come to you for an SEO campaign or a PPC campaign. Because, you know, quite frankly, if you've not had a good year, is that because you've not got good people or good resource? So, you know, from my point of view, you know, I've achieved great results this year. But why have I suffered? Well, it's predominantly because a lot of the client base that I've had are small business. And unfortunately, small businesses are the ones that don't have as large cash flow. They don't have the ability to absorb, you know, significant inflation. And even if you have an SEO campaign that drives two, three, four hundred percent organic increase, and even for high intent purchase terms, if people don't have the money, they stop buying. And that impacts everyone. So I wanted to make it clear this year that despite the great results, despite all the work, and we've got some amazing, you know, amazing results this year, but we've seen conversion rates dropped. So if we get a 200% increase in traffic, 
but we we see a 50 percent decrease in conversion because people decide that they're going to wait on that purchase then that's completely taken away some of that value but inflation's inflation comes down next year people's buying power returns that seo investment will go on to drive an roi so i guess from to to sort of summarize and finalize around that i want people to know and to feel like there's nothing wrong with you know airing if you've had a bad year if you haven't seen the success that you'd anticipated and i you know i genuinely believe people will have more trust in the content that i post if they see that I'm willing to lay everything bare, I've got nothing to hide. Well, Daniel, I have to say, I think we all absolutely adore you for that. <laughs> I think a lot of people resonated deeply with your post, actually. Um, you know, it was very candid and it's something that we don't get to see very often, especially not on like LinkedIn, you know. Um, and, you know, we know that that 2023 was quite a hard year. But would you say there are any other factors that, that contributed to how hard it was for everyone? I think, to be honest, a majority of it was 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 definitely down to inflation because fundamentally, when the cost of everything becomes more expensive, it it has a knock on effect on everything. So, you know, so the cost to deliver a service goes up because the cost of resource goes up, and then if you're trying to mitigate that cost with clients it's not easy to pass that on especially if the client is also suffering you know because they can't sell as many products so fundamentally you know we could say well that is at the forefront but you could then also argue uh you know that ai has been very disruptive this year so we had ai and the disruption at a content level so i think you know uh, lots of writers were panicking in 2023 because they, you know, all of a sudden they've got businesses everywhere that are like, you know, well, we can get AI articles done for pretty much next to nothing. That's created waves. Then obviously you've had all of the things this year with the Google core updates. It's been a massively disruptive year uh, in terms of just update, update, update. And it's not like they were even smaller, more subtle updates. There've been some really, really brutal updates this year that, you know, have impacted genuine businesses that have, you know, have been working really hard to produce and stay producing authentic content. I think that's a really key point as well. Um, some of the people that have been posting, you know, these case studies glorifying AI content actually received massive backlash for it because fundamentally what they're, what they're doing is they're creating a problem for our industry because... They make poor quality search results, which is what Google is, you know, battling to 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 defeat. So if if you've got members of the SEO community doing this stuff and churning it out at scale, it makes our industry look dirty. And it's like a knife in the back for all of the genuine people out there that put so much time and effort into working hard, you know, with a team of writers, with the client to build, you know, high quality content, something of value. And then all of a sudden you've got people showboating. Basically what they're doing is they're just doing what people used to do in the black cat community with article spinners. So I think when you bring all of these things together, it's been a, a, a perfect storm for, you know, uh, economic turbulence, uh, inflationary pressures on businesses, squeezing cash flow. Uh, then you've obviously had disruption 
from a marketing perspective. Um, there's probably some other things in there that are going to creep up uh, <laughs> down the line. But those, those, I would say, are the main uh, things for 2023 that have been disruptive. Just looking into 2024 now, and and with all of the things that we've navigated this year, have you learned anything with regards to how you might tackle 2024 should some of these similar problems arise? So I don't see uh, 2024 as, you know, going to be a fresh year. Everything will get better. I think, I think where we are at, and where we have been at is like the peak and we've held that peak for a while. I think things will improve in 2024. Um, I think that we will see a degree of recovery. So slight reduction in interest rates, enough to free up some disposable cash for millions of households across across the globe. And that small positive step forwards will spearhead some recovery across a lot of sectors. Um, I mean, and the one thing, sorry, I did, I completely left this out of 2023, but if you take a look at 2023, the tech industry experienced the highest level of layoffs uh, that I think we've ever seen. Um, and, you know, so when you look at it, like you've got tech businesses everywhere who on the, uh, you know, for the last 10 years rode the low interest rate uh growth phase should we say you know we had we had since 2008 the global economic crisis uh, interest rates were brought down low borrowing money was cheap so what do companies do you know you had tech companies innovative startups all over the world uh you know so you had like this decade of of, of growth booms so you had tech companies all over the place hiring left, right and center, taking on stuff that they didn't even need, you know, take a look at Facebook, for example. Um, and then 2023, you know, that all came crashing down. So you've got the tech sector that saw massive layoffs and declines. And, and that has a knock on effect, because then you've got investors who are, you know, uh, far more cautious, that impacts people like me. So I'm developing SEO stack. And I was going to try and go for seed funding uh, earlier this year. And then I looked at it and, you know, what offers I had six months ago uh, weren't there, you know, uh, a month ago when I went back to it. So I think for 2024, we will see recovery and indirectly that recovery impacts businesses all over the place. SEO, PPC, social media marketing. Um, I think the battle with... Google and TikTok will rock on. Um, although, you know, I could talk entirely about people talking about TikTok as a search engine when it's not the same thing as Google. Um, but yeah, I think 2024 will, will be a better year. I think in terms of stability with Google, I think we're probably going to have to endure a, a bit more because um, obviously, you know, we've got SGE deployment um, and then all kinds of things. You know, I know... Uh, helpful content algos have been evolving. So they're probably going to drop more factors as part of that. So I think definitely going to be an interesting one starting next year. Um, I only have two more questions for you, if that's all right. Um, And very quickly, just, you know, throughout your career, who have been your major influences or mentors in SEOs? I mean, how, 
have their teachings or examples really shaped your approach to the ever-evolving, you know, SEO landscape? Um, there are certainly people in the industry uh, like Bill Swarovski, um, you know, Danny Sullivan, Matt Cutts. Uh, you know, over the years, you know, I'd read a lot of their content. I would follow, you know, Rand Fishkin, for example. Um, I never idolized. I would always just take what people said with a pinch of salt. Um, I sort of miss Matt Cutts in a way. These were the fun days. So Matt Cutts used to post stuff on Twitter that, you know, Google had done something. And then I'd wait for him to announce it. And then I would go and purposely do something. So the funniest example was when they'd, he'd announced that uh, exact match domains had been devalued. So the first thing that I went out and did was buy an exact match domain. I then ranked it number one uh, uh, for teaching terms. Um, uh, and it was a site that was an EMD where I built a load of black cat PBNs, uh, FFA links, link spam. And the text on the page was Lorem Ipsum Delete. And then I snapshotted it and posted it to him on Twitter and loads of other things. But I, you know, I mean, there's loads of amazing people in the community. Like I could sit here all day and reel off people. Um, there's so many amazing people that I'd love to name who post, you know, really good and useful content. But as with anything in the SEO industry, the best thing people can do is read something, evaluate it and do testing. So, you know, for, in my career, I ranked for, you know, keywords that had CPCs of £100 plus a click. You know, I used to rank keywords that were like online casino and play blackjack. You know, these keywords had like 120, 130 pound CPCs. And I ranked number one for them. You know, I ranked number one for an EMD for SEO audits.io for SEO audits. Um, all of this stuff is through testing. And that was the reason that I decided to build SEO stack to give people a platform to, to do something and test. Okay. So last question, Daniel, and then I will definitely let you go because I know you're a busy man. Um, if you could go back in time, what kind of advice would you give to your your younger self just starting out? Oh, <laughs> um, work smarter, not harder. So the, 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 I, I wouldn't call it a mistake. I'd say that I'm not as far along in my career path as I'd like to have been. Um, but that's partly that's partly due to the fact that I worked harder. And the only reason that I did that was because I never felt when I recruited for an SEO that I truly got people, you know, that I could, um, you know, hand over to and, and step back from. Um, I've taken on and I've had some very good SEOs over the years. Um, but as with most people in the SEO industry, if if SEOs are really good, they're either doing it themselves, so they're not working for an agency, uh, or or they freelance. In which case, you know, if they're freelancing, probability is that you are one of many, you know, of the clients that they have. So when I tried to recruit, you know, uh, the biggest mistakes that I made was that my client pool was small business. That small business left me with narrower margins, which meant that I couldn't pay for creme de la creme SEOs. And 
all this time, you know, working uh, smarter would have been delegate, build a team, sub-delegate, and then I could obviously focus more. But for most of my working career, I've been at the forefront of all of the SEO. So I've not overseen the business. I am the business. And now that's not so much the case, but that's hindered me and sent me back quite a long time. The other thing would be as well, um, you know, to to maybe adopt other languages. I'd love to have learned more languages. Uh, I think that they're very important to have multiple languages when you're an SEO. Um, and to find a better work-life balance. So uh, I would never glorify working 12, 15, 18 hours a day, and I've done it for a long time. Uh, some of the people that follow me on LinkedIn know that I, unfortunately, I do have health issues because of what I've done over the years. If I could go back and start again, I would explicitly limit my days to 12 hours and I would have a better work-life balance. I think this year, this year has actually made it a lot worse. I was actually heading towards 12-hour days, but November um, uh, 2023 came along like a steamroller and it, you know, it had other ideas. Um, and just to drop in there, you know, not, not all of my businesses did badly. So, you know, 2023 assertive broke even. My consultancy suffered badly. That did suffer. But my SEO audits IO business grew. Um, so it's not all doom and gloom, but obviously, you know, I wanted to highlight the fact that based on what my earlier post was, that businesses might look like one thing on the outside, but have a completely different story on the other side. So that would be another thing as well, I guess, if I was to go back and that's the grass is not always greener on the other side. So whilst you might see big businesses on paper, big businesses and social media photos doesn't necessarily mean that things are good. A hundred percent. Thank you so much for being so open and honest about that. I, I just wanted to say one thing is, yes, the grass is not always greener on the other side. It's greener where you water it, right? And that concludes our discussion with Daniel Foley Carter on the dynamic world of SEO, authenticity, and how we can better navigate 2024. Are you looking for expert SEO guidance for your next project? Design Rush is here to help. Visit designrush.com slash marketplace for a handpicked selection of top tier SEO agencies ready to elevate your next project. Again, I'm your host, Bianca Mayer, reminding you to like, subscribe, and join us for the next Design Rush podcast for more leading conversations with industry experts.